A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast. I'm Al. <laughs> and I'm Chris. This week, 100 years after the October Revolution, we're looking at how art and propaganda have attempted to capture the Russian soul. Later on, Chris will chat to artist and activist Masha Alokina of Pussy Riot. Whether you're listening to the podcast from Russia, a fan of Tolstoy, or have seen Armando Iannucci's new film, The Death of Stalin, we're keen to chat to you about all things Russia at our Facebook page. first item on the menu is an email from Michael Zed, who calls himself an elderly fan from Texas. This was a very nice email to receive. And without wanting to sound too self-congratulatory, impossible. Um, I'm just going to read a short extract. He says, it really feels as though you have really locked in as a team. And I am in search of a CBT therapist who specialises in sleep. I listened to the Lionel Shriver story on my way super early this morning to the airport to visit my father in LA. At least he won't experience that world. I hope we don't, but it feels all too plausible. We saw LCD Sound System twice and Roger McGuinn last night. His guitar playing was perfect, no arthritis, which gave me hope for the future, assuming there is one. Well, that's very nice, isn't it? It's very nice. I think Lionel Shriver's short story, as those who have listened to it will know, is dystopian, but Michael's email was very nice to receive. Well, I hope that Michael Zed finds a CBT therapist. And I also want to celebrate the fact that we have an actual fan who isn't a member of your family. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good thing. That is something to celebrate. A lot of our Facebook followers do have the surname Murray Brown, interestingly. Well, Michael Zed has a special place in the heart of everything else. Al, what have you been up to this week? Because it's the Russia special, I've been obviously trying to remember my schoolboy Russian. Mm -hmm. how, uh, how is your schoolboy Russian? I've had limited success. I've remembered how to say, my brother is brave. Yeah. Moi brat is smelly. <laughs> Sounds like smelly. Yeah, exactly. That's why I remembered it. <laughs> I also remembered, Sto ete? Ete stol. I learned that in my first ever class. That means, what is this? This is a table. Oh. And I can say other useful things like Dobry Jen, as everyone heard at the beginning of the podcast, but I can't say welcome. And I can say Dobry Utro, which means good morning. And I can say Dasvedania, which means goodbye. And I can say Kharsho, which means good. But that's about it. Apart from, I've been hypnobirthing. Emily and I went off to hypnobirthing to a, a little centre in Hackney where there were cushions and a small number of lovely couples and the smell of incense in the air. And we began our hypnobirthing course. What's hypnobirthing? I think the idea is to hypnotise us, well, particularly Emily, into a state where she doesn't think of things like contractions as being contractions anymore. These are now surges or waves. Labour is not labour, it's just the birth. Pain is not pain, it's just intense. So there's a kind of um, rebranding going on. Yeah, but it's... But well, it's deeper than that. No, it's much deeper than that. It's, it's retraining the brain to think about it in a beautiful and natural way 
rather than in the sort of medicalized, fear-led way. The amount of time I spend in this office listening to people telling me horror stories about birth. And then you go to this hypnobirthing <laughs> and you see a little video of someone giving birth in a pool at home having done hypnobirthing. And it just looks smiling. miraculous. They're smiling. <laughs> it's just like there's no noise. It's just like just this beautiful spiritual thing. So and quite a convert to hypnobirthing. I'm an evangelical convert. And part of it is you do affirmations. They're very important for Emily, and she has written all these affirmations, little post-it notes around the house. That what many things th do they say? On our fridge, we have things like, I can do this, and I trust my choices, and my baby feels my love. That's nice. Yeah, and so if you see that kind of stuff all the time, but also if you repeat it to yourself over and over like a mantra, you retrain your frightened psyche the bit of your brain that's constantly telling that you can't do things, that you're a loser, that life is hopeless, that life is painful and upsetting, it retrains it to think everything will be fine. And automatically, that triggers endorphins and positive energy in you, so that actually when the moment comes, you feel completely differently about it. And one of the most important things when you give birth, I believe, is the release of oxytocin, mm -hmm. which is the love hormone. Right. It's, the, it's the hormone you get when you cuddle a baby or when you have sex or when you're breastfeeding or when you fall in love. You need oxytocin and you need endorphins and these are positive hormones. So what have your affirmations been? Well, on the fridge I have written, I am a loving, gentle and kind birth partner. So then every time I go and get... Birth partner as opposed to husband, father. No, no, we live in the modern age. This is not... You know, yeah, I'm a yeah, birth yeah. partner, I'm not a father, I'm a birth partner. <laughs> I am a loving, gentle and kind birth partner. And I say this approximately a thousand times a day. And <laughs> out loud or just... No, out loud. When I walk to work, I, it takes me an hour to walk and I'm walking in saying things like, I am a loving, gentle and kind birth partner. I am a loving, gentle and kind birth partner. <laughs> I am a loving, gentle and kind birth partner. It sounds and just a little bit sinister, but... No, no, it's just getting... And even if you switch off, it's still getting into your head. And this can be applied to the rest of your life. So hypnobirthing is for me, as someone who's not pregnant, or an old man, or a young child. Can we all be, can we all take something from this? Well, we can all take something from affirmations. So instead of walking into work saying, I am a loving, gentle and kind birth partner, mm -hmm. you could walk into work saying... I sound great on the podcast. I sound great on the podcast. Or, you know, I am strong, free and brave. I am strong, free and brave. And then you arrive at work feeling strong, free and brave and that you're probably pretty great on the podcast. And I think essentially it is potentially a route to being intensely delusional and arrogant. And, but positive at and least. And really happy. It's like I'm going to take it forever. Yeah. I spent some of the summer in California and this sounds like very Californian, this kind of positivity, this kind of almost like mental trickery. And I don't mean, I realise that sounds cynical and I'm trying not to be cynical, but there's something about telling yourself the opposite of how you feel I think it's quite powerful. Yes, but it, I don't think it's trickery. I think it's the opposite. I think it's retraining the brain to be what it should be rather than this. So we're sort of stuck in these negative patterns. Yeah, you know, this sort of guilt-ridden, God, I'm a loser that voice in your head the whole time telling you, you know, oh, I've got a great idea, or well, you won't be able to do that because you're such a massive loser. That voice goes. You'll be like, oh, I've got an idea. And the little voice goes, oh, you can do it. You can you do it. You are the master of you ideas. You can do it. You can do it. <laughs> oh, maybe I should start doing some hypnobirthing. Yeah, I, I, can't, I'm, I can't wait for my next session. <laughs>
Okay, so if you haven't been hypnobirthing, <laughs> what else is there to do in the world? Else he could have been doing, but <laughs> did he manage to do anything? I caught up with the film The Death of Stalin. I was about to say the new film. It's actually now not quite so new. It's a brilliantly funny comedy by Amanda Iannucci, which I think you've seen as well, haven't you? I have. I thought it was a brilliant film. I'm not sure if it's a brilliantly funny film. Oh, I thought it was hilarious. I was I was really, you know, there were some serious lols. Yeah, I think, I think you're <laughs> right. I think there were some serious lols. There, there, was, there was maybe even a ruffle. But it's not as... <laughs> not at the cinema, come on. <laughs> but it's not as funny as In the Loop or... The Thick of It, is it? Also by Amanda Annucci. But I think there were some parallels there. So In the Loop and The Thick of It, a kind of Westminster in the noughties. Tom used to work in Parliament and I feel like it's a kind of world that I have had. Who is this mysterious Tom that you speak of? <laughs> Tom, my fiance, okay. used to work in Parliament. And I think I have the slight kind of outsider's insider insight, if that makes sense, into the world of The Thick of It. It's not very pretty that sort of chaos, that omni-shambles that they talk about, is kind of present in the Kremlin in 1953. So there's a completely different world, but that sort of um, power-grabbing, power-hungry, all of those kind of really base motives, and the really pettiness and the scrabbling, the kind of worst of what people are. Sticking with our Russian theme, we're going to be chatting to the comedian and writer Viv Groskop about Russia and her love affair with Russian literature. But before we do, we thought we would leave the studio and head for Tate Modern, where there's a brand new exhibition of Soviet art called Red Star Over Russia, a revolution in visual culture, 1905 to 55. So we're standing in the first room at the Tate show. We're standing in front of a huge wall painted a deep red colour with a kind of collage of different Soviet-era propaganda posters. Al, how would you describe what we're looking at right now? These are some of the earliest propaganda posters. I think most of these are dating between 1917 and the Civil War in the 1920s. We have, up here we have some three fat capitalists representing the United States, France and Britain. Absolutely iconic poster of Lenin, this great bald protuberant head thrust forward and he's pointing towards the future. And up here on the left, one of my favourite, this is the, the, the poster that they use um, for the whole exhibition called Emancipated Woman Build Socialism, created for the International Women's Day in 1926. And she is a woman to be reckoned with. She's quite serious looking, isn't she? She's extremely serious looking. One would hope, inspiring. I think an interesting thing, looking at this room and all of these, what are essentially posters framed on the walls, they do share a kind of common, very strong graphic aesthetic. In the second room now, we've moved on a bit. The revolution is established. Trotsky has disappeared. He's fallen out of favour. And whereas just a few years earlier, he would have been in all of these kinds of posters. Now, Stalin is dominating everything. So here, for example, we have a montage by Gustav Klutzis. Trotsky is nowhere to be seen. We have it got Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin. The march of history from left to right. 
So we're now on the kind of third chapter of the exhibition and what we saw before, this photo montage, cutout, collage, quite avant-garde, sometimes sort of abstract, uh, that aesthetic has given way to something that feels much more kind of 19th century painting. What, what are we looking at here? We've gone forward in time insofar as it's now 1937, but in terms of a style, we've gone back to the 19th century to a sort of kitsch realism. We have three oil paintings by Alexander Jenica, which he painted for the International Exhibition of Art and Technology. If you look at these faces, we have a group of happy Soviets, happy, healthy, successful Soviets. Marching towards us, striding forward into the future. It's an abysmally kitsch image, isn't it? And I mean, it's kind of like bathed in a sort of rose-coloured light. It's, it's pretty it's sickly. Of, it's full of hope, though, isn't it? <laughs> Soviet hope, we're all equal and we're all happy. So that was the public face of Russia. That was the Russia that it was presenting to the rest of the world. The room that we're coming into now is something different. It's the, it's the private side. It's what was really happening. And things take a bit of a dark turn. So, for example, we have you know, a famous photograph of Lenin giving a great speech. In the original photograph, Trotsky featured prominently. In this one, he has eerily vanished. It's a kind um, of early Photoshop going on, isn't yes, it? Yes, but at least but they've done it rather well. We have one here from 1927. Yeah, a group it's a kind of, of group photo. A yeah. group of happy Soviet workers, and the poor guy in the middle's face has been gouged out, literally gouged out of history. It's very kind of primitive, the, the one just to the left of this, another group of soldiers, or sailors they look like, and there are crosses across some of their faces. This is almost what would have happened before the gouging out took place. These people have been marked off as, yeah. you know, it's so, traitors. It's I mean, so simple people. and so terrifying. You just, you just erase someone by inking a cross across their face. Okay, so this is the final room. This is Second World War. We have a striking image of three flags showing the Allies. So we have the Soviet Union at the bottom, above that the United States flag, and above that the Union Jack. And these three flags are sort of pointing down like, like sort of thunderbolts from, I don't know, from, yeah, from heaven. Always make a kind of thunderbolts. Exactly. exactly. Uh, you know, sort of pointing down on a miserable looking a pair of a hideous little Hitler and a fat, hideous sort of toad-like Mussolini sort of sheltering um, hopelessly under a bedraggled umbrella. It's sort of inspiring. It's kind of funny as well. Yeah, I mean, it looks exactly like what your umbrella looks like when it's just turned inside out in the wind. It's kind exactly. of sort of crooked and useless. And not an image of Stalin in sight. Okay, so we've come out of the exhibition. Is it what you were expecting? I think it's really well done. It's quite sort of subtle, quite sensitive, but it's sort of quite haunting at the same time. I mean, in those first rooms, you get this sense of this kind of, you know, this outpouring of creativity and sort of hopefulness, and these really graphic pictures are kind of incredible. And then slowly, slowly, you know, you get the images of the sort of defaced, the, mis the people who just disappear from imagery and disappear from, you know, the face of the earth. You seem kind of elated almost. Did you find something inspiring about seeing this work? I'm passionate about this period of history and Russia in, in general and just, just seeing those actual 
actual posters that were there. Okay, so let's head back to the studio where we're going to be talking to Viv Groskop, the writer and comedian, and we're going to be asking her how we define the Russian soul. So we just heard Lara's theme from the film version of Dr. Zhivago by David Lean. And we have Viv Groskop in the studio and vodka on the table. Good morning. Dobre utra, comrades. Dobre utra, Tavarish. When are we going to drink? Well, don't hold back. Although as long as there are no Russians present, never, ever drink with Russians. But um, I think Grizz has a Russian soul, so... <laughs> well, you we'll drink enough out. vodka and you, every part of you is Russian, not just the soul. <laughs> it's not too bad drinking if you're a woman. You can just about get away with it but as a man it's a disaster okay, well, because you can never stop you need, you need to you need no 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 oh. no no. you need to look in the eyes and you need to raise a toast to something so zadruzhbu to friendship nazdorovia marks you out as a foreigner nazdorovia if you say nazdorovia means to your health but zazdorovia is a proper toast for health okay Okay. Okay, so we're primarily interested in the Russian soul, and I have a theory of what the Russian soul might be. Tell me be. your theory, Al. Okay. More than any other soul, I think the Russian soul is, is bigger and deeper and darker. It has a greater capacity for suffering and love and hope and happiness and despair than any other soul in the world. Do you agree with that? How, what a beautiful description. <laughs> well, I think that is a sort of description you would come up with of the Russian soul if you're being tortured by Russians who are demanding that you <laughs> expand on the soul in, in the most flowery Or if terms. you've just read Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. Uh, yeah, no, I, I do think you have nailed it there. The Russian soul is something very particular and unusual and I'm always reminded of this quote by the poet Tutyev, which is you may not understand Russia using your mind. And that's one of the most famous, and most oft-quoted uh, Russian poems. And it alludes to the fact that you can only understand Russia if you have a soul. You can only understand it with instinct. You can't understand it with intellect. And that idea is very deeply rooted in Russian culture. But it has this flip side as well of being something quite negative and easily manipulated in the sense that there's no logic going on here. So Russian soul can mean anything. And then it can be manipulated by, for example, an authoritarian regime <laughs> to mean anything you want. Uh, it's both a very deep and profound, a profound concept, but also a very nebulous one. And there's something very seductive about that, but also something a bit dangerous. In your book, you talk about going to Russia as a sort of 20 year old and being surprised that people really talk about souls and their souls and the concept of, of fate. I mean, was that was that a surprise to you because it's something that's distinctly Russian? I mean, people in London don't sort of walk around talking about fate all the time. Yeah, absolutely. It was something that came about because when you first learn language, you focus on certain words. And when I first went to Russia in the early 1990s, I was in my early 20s and I'd been learning Russian for one or two years. And my Russian wasn't great. And I'd gone there for the year 
to learn it fluently. And there were certain words that I could always hear coming out in conversation without understanding what the, all the other words around those. And those were sudba, which is fate, and dusha, which is soul. And I just kept thinking, I must be mishearing this because <laughs> everywhere I go, people are saying blah, 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 fate, blah, 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 soul. How can it be that they talk about this so often? And then the more I came to understand, the more I realised, yes, they really are talking about this in everyday life. And it's something that people might say amusingly in passing, you know, oh, it's not your fate to drink this vodka today or whatever. <laughs> or people will say very, very easily, if they like you, you have a Russian soul. That's and the highest compliment. It's the, well, it's the highest compliment, but also an everyday one of just, I like you as a person. You seem like, okay. you know, our kind of person. Do you uh, have a Russian soul? I have been told many times that I have a Russian soul, which because I have lots of Russian friends and it just <laughs> means they like you when they say that. Um, do I really have a Russian soul? I hope so. You say that Yuri yeah. Shivago has the most Russian of souls. We just listened to the theme from, from the film. I mean, what, what is it about Shivago that's... Well, Shivago is a work uh, that is very much rooted in this idea of fate. Again, it's also something very beautiful, but also something, in this case, faintly ridiculous. I mean, Mm -hmm. the idea of fate and coincidence in Dr. Shivago is, is almost hilarious. You know, this is a man who falls in love with a woman he can't be with, Lara, because he's married to Tonya. And everywhere he goes in a country with the largest landmass on earth he keeps bumping into her. It's amazing. It's fate. Uh, it, is, it is fate. Uh, so it's both a sort of wonderful illustration of the true Russian belief in fate. And perhaps it is rooted in the idea that they live in this enormous country and you have to somehow make sense of that in your own mind. Perhaps very difficult for us as Brits living in such a small on such a small yeah, island to understand. About, there's something about that sense of enormous belonging mm. that perhaps fate helps you with. The opening scene of Dr. Zhivago is a little boy looking out on his mother's grave and realising, you know, this is going to be my fate to be an orphan. The chapter in the book, The Anna Karenina Fix, is about surviving fate and how you cope with that. And I'm harking back to the moment when I first arrived in Russia and something very fateful happened. Within only a few weeks of me arriving one of the quite small group of friends I'd made there, she she committed suicide. She hung herself. And I only knew a handful of people. Um, I'd been to Russia a couple of times before, and these are my friends that I'd cultivated. And I can remember thinking at the time, you know, of all the ru- most Russian, almost novelistic things to happen to someone young that you knew you know I'd I'd been alive for 20 years and Mm. and never had anything terrible happen to me and then I go to Russia and and one of my friends has died almost immediately so I'm not meaning to make a joke of that but there is something darkly comic that time in my life was very heightened anyway because it was such a strange period in Russia you know with the Berlin Wall having just come down a couple of years before most of the people I met in Russia who became my friends had never met a foreigner and they'd grown up thinking that they would never meet a foreigner Uh, they would never have a passport they would never travel so you were in this real sort of hothouse environment where relationships were very heightened and when this friend died some other friends came to collect me to take me to the funeral and the first thing they said was bring your makeup I just understood Mm. the commands and I was very pleased with myself because my (laughs) Russian wasn't very good then. So I just took my makeup and when I got there, uh, a group of friends who I didn't know, very heavily made up, beautiful young women, loads of sort of green eyeshadow and pink lips came up and said, you know, are you the foreigner? Did you bring the makeup? 
and then it was taken away and then when we were ushered in to see the corpse um, there she was beautifully made up it was uh, Western Clinique <laughs> the highest accolade okay so we're here not to celebrate but to to mark a hundred years since the October Revolution and Chris and I have been to the exhibition at Tate which is dominated by sort of Stalinist propaganda and it strikes me that that kind of artwork is perhaps not really any different to Pasternak writing about the soul or Dostoevsky or Mayakovsky or Tolstoy that all of them are trying in some way to sort of take ownership of what the Russian soul is and that arguably that propaganda is crude as it might seem to our sensibilities is, is arguably no more inferior than any of the any of the others one man's propaganda is another man's patriotism i'm not sure i agree with that entirely because i think you need, need to draw a distinction between state-sponsored art and art that was created at the risk of the creator but are we <laughs> so not looking if- back and just and seeing 20 million Stalinist corpses and just therefore just assume that it's all desperately evil, which it must be. Whereas the at the same time there is a sort of hopefulness and this this arguably is an art for a hopeful proletariat trying to sort of march forward to the future. Yes, but it's purely an aesthetic. I wouldn't start for a moment to compare Soviet propaganda posters with a novel like Dr. Zhivago, which could not be published in the Soviet Union during the writer's lifetime and almost got him killed and he had to turn down his Nobel Prize and or, so there's or, something like transgressive uh, about trying to capture the Russian soul you can't do that if you're doing it from a kind of state sponsored position well think. I think that those are a hollow projection of the Ru- Russian soul that can't be compared to poetry or literature especially when it's been created in exceptionally difficult circumstances and rejected by the state it's not to say that Anything that has been accepted by the state is hollow and useless. I'm sure that there would be some exceptions. You know, this is a really, really difficult thing about the Soviet period is do you have to look at all of the art that was created within that period, especially all of the art that was state approved, and say this is worthless? Well, Shostakovich is a case in point, isn't it? Well, absolutely. But Shostakovich, absolutely tortured person and some of his work he would personally disown because he feels that it's too much uh, in service well, to the, the regime. The movie theme tunes and things like that. Yeah well you know there are many many artists who were forced to create work that was compromised on some level and it makes the work very interesting but it means that we can't evaluate it in the terms that we as westerners would usually be evaluating work. We don't really have a precedent from our own history that recreates these conditions many many writers in the western context they never really have to engage with politics at all they can just write what they want to write but in the soviet context you know there's no way that you could just be somebody like oh i think i will just write poetry about love well no that's not going to happen that way in some ways that does sort of sharpen the pen though doesn't it does that not make the dissident writers or the dissident artists their work that much more immediate i think it makes it more pertinent to that period because it's such an expression of contemporary in-the-moment anxieties and examining what exactly is wrong in that present moment. But it makes it very difficult for posterity, I think. And I wonder if in 50, 100 years' time, how we will look back on authors like Bulgakov or Akhmatova, Solzhenitsyn. I mean, Solzhenitsyn is a great case in point. You know, Solzhenitsyn, who would he be without the Soviet experience? Well, you know, he probably wouldn't be a writer at all. 
he would perhaps be a historian, but mm. he would not be a literary figure. Because he's, you know, I don't want to be is too he, controversial. He's overrated anyway. He's not overrated as an extremely important figure from the Soviet period because he's the first person who created a work of huge resonance out of the camp experience. But is he on the level of Dickens, Jane Austen, Pushkin? No, he isn't. He's he's a documenter. He's a almost like a literary journalist. Because there is an argument that an artist needs freedom and kind of full expression in order to flourish and that you can't kind of achieve any sort of anything like sort of fulfillment as an artist if you have all of these restraints on you. I yeah, think. absolutely. And I, I think it becomes dangerous sometimes that we, especially in the West, look at these conditions in which these works of art were created and we say, oh yes, but here's a positive. Uh, the, if you put people under pressure, they create great art. Well, that's <laughs> there's definitely something really interesting about that and, and it's great mm. to examine it. But it's also slightly pointless because what are you saying? You want to recreate those conditions mm. in order to create great art. So do you look at Pasternak and you know, Markovsky, Shostakovich as the custodians of the Russian soul? Oh, such a big question. I'm intrigued by the idea that we're trying to meld together lots of different eras here. Because for me, the idea of the Russian soul comes very much from that period of Chuchev or Pushkin, later on Dostoevsky, Tolstoy. But your friends were um, talking about soul and fate. Is the Russian soul not a continuous thing? I would argue in the Soviet period, it becomes something very different and it becomes something that's... It's almost as if I can sort of see it visually in my mind that it's something that is imposed upon people now, this idea of the Russian soul in the Soviet period with this propaganda. In previous periods, it's something that was explored and allowed to arise, whatever the context, if it's a novel or poetry. Whereas in the Soviet period, it's something that's imposed from above. Viv, I have a terrible confession to make to you, which is that I have never read one single Russian novel. I don't think it's so much the length or the sort of number of characters that puts me off. I kind of managed to get through Middlemarch, but it's something about the bleakness, I think. You need to drink some more vodka, Grizz. (laughs) Come on. I've been saying that These books can only be drunk, can only be read half cut. (laughs) I mean, there's something that's slightly off-putting, and I think that I'm, I'm sure I'm wrong, but... What would you recommend? What advice could you give Well, me? you are exactly the person I wrote this book for. So I've been <laughs> trying to get this book published for 15 years, the Anna Karenina fix. And I finally managed to get it off, off the ground when the BBC One adaptation of War and Peace came out. And I was writing a TV blog mm-hmm. of this adaptation, which attracted thousands of comments below the line, people loving discussing this. And I suddenly was able to show uh, publishers that there's a real audience for people who want to engage with these works but don't feel that they've ever had the time to really read them properly, they feel intimidated by them. The great trick for War and Peace is knowing that at the end of every single translation there is a precy of the whole book line by line, chapter by chapter which lasts about 10 pages. So you can actually read the whole of War and Peace in five minutes <laughs> just by reading that pricey. And you can also skip. The only way I first got through War and Peace was just to read the piece. Yes, exactly. The war is so boring. <laughs> I'm so glad you say that. The war bits are so boring and the yes. piece is great. And it's the same with Anna Karenina. The bits with Anna are fantastic. And the bits with... Levin. Levin are slightly boring, <laughs> Yes. They? Well, yeah, that's the most that's fascinating the thing well. about Anna Karenina is that... 
Tolstoy set out to write a book where Levin, who is Tolstoy, would be this very admirable and wonderful man who really respects the peasantry. Boring on about farming. Yeah, boring on about ploughing. And Anna Karenina (laughs) would be this incredibly evil and terrible, adulterous woman. But in fact, I think he falls in love with Anna and he realises that she's a much more attractive person. And we'd all rather spend time... Yeah, absolutely. I think he wishes he were Anna. Oh, okay. He sees a lot of himself in her and he doesn't like what he sees. But do you think in a lot of these books there is a kind of bleakness that to a sort of English reader is is tricky? Or is, is that, you know, am I, am I wrong in thinking that? Absolutely. That is the stereotype that we have of these books. And stereotypes exist for a reason, which is that they have a grain of truth in them. But I think there's something behind all of that and that's what I wanted to bring out in the in this book was that there's so much humour there's so much life there's so much passion Chekhov is a great example you know he was a doctor for his whole life he truly understands the human condition he's very funny he sees our flaws brilliantly and although there's a veneer of bleakness often it actually is just a foil for some jokes yeah, he a used lot to of hate time. it when Stanislavski did productions and and he thought they were too po-faced and he was like no no this is this is a comedy is it yeah absolutely <laughs> i think a lot of these books we've come to them with this idea that they're going to be gloomy and so then they seem gloomy one of the books i couldn't include in this so i'm talking about 11 different russian classics in the anna karenina fix and one i really wanted to include was gogol's the overcoat and the story of that for me is russian literature in a nutshell An insignificant copying clerk really wants an overcoat. He saves up for an overcoat for a long time, very long time. Finally, when it on the day it comes into his possession, when he's managed to save up enough money to Mm -hmm. buy it, he has it stolen from him, and shortly after he falls ill and dies. (laughs) That is Russian literature's idea of a life lesson. Um, But you know, it is actually funny. And it is the sort of thing that happens in life. A lot of Russian literature is about Sod's Law and of all of us thinking, oh, why does this have to happen to me? Well, I think on that note, I urge all of our readers to go and buy the Anna Karenina fix. Viv, thank you so much for thank coming on the so podcast. Much, thank you, So, Grace, you interviewed Maria or Masha Alokina. How was that? She is unlike anyone I've ever met. She's sort of tough and quite tricky, but inspiring. She's not self-congratulatory or sort of egotistical in in any way at all, but she's totally sort of obsessed with what she sees as her and Pussy Riot's kind of mission, her sort of anti-Putin mission. But she, she doesn't really like talking about herself. She was sort of not, not an easy interview. But she was an inspiring one. Yeah, she was totally inspiring. I feel I came out feeling like, you know, here is a very steely woman. She's not trying to please. She certainly wasn't trying to please me. She's really doing something. She's actually making a change. Did she inspire you to become a revolutionary? (laughs) I would say my day-to-day life has continued much as before, but she left... She definitely left a mark on me. I mean, you know, one of her theories in this new book she's written riot days and actually something she said lots of times before is that anyone can be in pussy riot pussy riot is not a sort of defined collective of russian women it's more an ideology yeah and but so, that's their motto isn't it anyone can be pussy riot yes yeah, so are maybe, you pussy riot well yeah i mean yes i am i'm gonna own that 
Well, I want to be Pussy Riot. Well, you can join too, Al. Well, the entire podcast is Pussy Riot. <laughs> Most of you will have heard of Pussy Riot and you may have images in your head of their protest punk prayer in 2012 on the altar of that cathedral in Moscow. But what exactly is Pussy Riot? Because it's more than just a pop group, isn't it? They're not a pop group, I wouldn't say. I mean, that they're a collective. They're performance artists, in a way. I mean, they've they've spoken at places like the Freeze Art Fair, so they're they're sort of straddling the worlds of contemporary art, punk, activism, politics. They're real feminists, and I think, you know, one of the things they were chanting when they were at the Cathedral of Christ the Saviour in Moscow was, Virgin Mary, Mother of God, become a feminist. Virgin Mary, Mother of God, chase Putin out. And they have this idea that, the Russian church can be cleansed. If it could be cleansed, feminism might be one of the ways that that's possible. So after that, she went to prison for nearly two years and very famously sued the Russian penal colony. She's the first person, I believe, ever to have done that successfully. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone's surprised, including her and her lawyer. And not only that, but in the book, which is really worth reading, actually. It's very sort of strange and um, fragmentary bits of her diaries, bits of her thoughts, sort of manifesto. But she talks about her, her time in prison. And not only did she sue the penal colony, which is completely unheard of, she also had these sort of small but quite important victories, like getting warm winter shawls for the women there because it was sort of sub-zero temperatures and also getting working telephones for them, which they didn't have before. Did you feel... Slightly bourgeois and middle class <laughs> when you were with this sort of great, you know, international activist. I think maybe most people would. Well, I, mean, I definitely she's would. She's had an experience unlike anyone I think we've ever had on the podcast. And yet she's sort of, it's not about her when you interview her. It's completely about Russia and about Putin and about corruption. Well, I think that chimes with exactly what she has said about her book, which is that it's not a memoir, rather it combined everything that I thought important in the story of Pussy Riot. How many people are in Pussy Riot, do you reckon? I don't think it's something where... It's unquantifiable. There's a kind of population. It's a movement, and it's a movement that is spanning the internet as well. Yeah, I mean, it's one a feeling. Of, it's, it's a feeling, but it's also a kind of... It's a Pussy Riot vibe. It's, it's a group. And they had this video last year, Straight Out of Vagina, it's called, which is a kind of feminist riposte to Donald Trump's pussy-grabbing comment. And it's quite sort of funny and surreal. And they have a, they have a way of sort of somehow chiming with the cultural sort of zeitgeist. Like they had this punky, quite fun aesthetic. Which means very good. Let's listen to your interview. Masha, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. So I wanted to start by asking you about Riot Days, your new book. It's not really a a straightforward memoir or a history book, what kind of book would you say it is? You're right. Uh, it's uh, it's not memoir. It's all true there, but um, it's full of different things there. It's a mix uh, of manifesto statements, statements of artists who inspire me and inspired during um, kind of a hard time. It's... Um, parts of my diaries and uh, it's protocols of uh, a court which is the most uh, I think uh, funny and absurd 
part because uh, it's real theater there. I don't like, uh, I'm, I'm bad at definitions, but uh, for my opinion, it's manifesto. And you write about the experience of being in these Russian penal colonies in Siberia for almost two years. Can you describe a little bit what that experience, what was that like? We have a post-Soviet system of uh, prisons in Russia, which means a big difference with Western prisons. You have a concept of prison with cells, and we have a Soviet collective systems with barracks where 80 or 100 women are living together, sleeping in one room, having three toilets, for example, for the whole unit. The main difference is um, also a labor. In Soviet Union, they were saying uh, is making a person better for the bright future. But in reality, it's uh, cynical slavery. So they kind of put you to work when you were in prison? With me, it's a special story because I refused to do it firstly. And uh, secondly, I start all my term from the solitary confinement. What was the experience of being all alone like that? For me, it was a sign to fight because it wasn't just an isolation. It was uh, a pressure uh, with kind of visits uh, of uh, different prison guards uh, who were saying that I should write a paper of guilty or I broke some laws, penal colony laws and so on. In those situations, uh, in the situations when you are in the hard conditions, I mean, I think all of us have these situations. It's not about uh, penal colony in the Ural Mountains. It's about every life of every person who at uh, some moment, some day, will have a difficult situation of choice in their life. I gave an example of choice in this difficult situation because if you choose to follow to lies, which uh, was all around, and do not stay for your truth, it means uh, that you became a real prisoner. It means that uh, they really took your freedom. And this is a way of losing yourself. So it's about your mindset. It's about your whether they've captured your thoughts. Yeah, the sense of the system, which I think was somehow created on the 30s um, of last century, during uh, the Stalin's period, this idea of creating from the person a detail of society mechanism, which should work for like bright future of society. Via this concept, everybody should be like like everybody else. It's uh, totally against uh, personality. It's totally against uh, individuality. When you understand it, uh, you start to fight for each small thing because uh, it's not small things, it's uh, details. Through these details, you can see yourself and your life and uh, do not lose it. And can you tell me what it was like to be to be released from prison, to see your son again, to go to see your friends again. What was that feeling like? Uh, firstly, my son was uh, visiting me every three months. We have, uh, by law, visits 
of uh, relatives. So he and his father uh, were coming firstly to first penal colony and secondly to second. First impressions, it's kind of another story because uh, it's also a big challenge because uh, you understand like day by day a big responsibility for all those people who were supporting you two years. Because uh, many people spend all their time to to help us. They were living it as an activist between our penal colonies, Nadia's and mine. And uh, also all those people around the world who were protesting uh, in the front of Russian embassies, who were writing songs, who were making statements, all those people who put their give a power to us and our words, I felt that I I should give back. And uh, we've been released just before, like Putin wrote a special amnesty before the Olympic Games. And uh, I think since the Olympic Games, since uh, January of 2014, kind of a new, hi- uh, new history, new story started because somehow Putin and his administration felt that they are kind of quasi-gods and they can do anything they want. Crimea crisis happened just after two months. In February, that was the first big political trial and sentence for activists who were protesting on the 6th May in 2012. And in March, Crimea happened. Since that time, cases like ours became uh, everyday practice. Do you think it's, it's now harder, even harder, to be an activist in Russia? Mm, no, it's not harder. It's just different. The risk is higher. I'm not counting the risks uh, <laughs> because if you if you will count uh, the risks, you will never start to do something, and especially uh, in Russia because it's tot- totally uh, unpredictable. It's not like a totalitarian system. It's more like mafia state. They can like wake up and start a war. Next day, wake up and put somebody to prison just because they are angry. Were you, were your parents or people that you knew when you were growing up? Were they revolutionaries or activists? Or no, no, no. What were your parents like? Uh, my mother, she's a programmist, and my father, he's a mathematics professor. There were no, almost no, as you said, revolutionary talks in our family, but... Um, so when did you become an activist? Was, was there I any kind school, of moment? in school. <laughs> in school? I just love questions because I think that they are changing the world. I think it's from the school. I changed five schools. I Re- was quite, quite a threat <laughs> troublemaker. <laughs> but it was my mom who first gave me, for example, Solzhenitsyn to read. I was 12. It was a New Year's uh, Eve, and uh, she gave me a book and said that uh, I should read it somehow. In your view, is there a difference between art and activism, or are they one? I believe that uh, political art exists for change, change of the world and uh, people, not serving governmental or corporative interests. I believe that world uh, needs political art more than more, more than before now. 
this is one of the strongest weapons which can rise up an activist movement as well. I do not separate uh, and uh, determine uh, art and activism. I prefer just uh, do what I feel. Some of the projects that and works that Pussy Riot have done have had quite a lot of humour and kind of almost like a surreal <laughs> aspect to them. Do you think that's like an approach that's the most effective or is that... What, why have you decided, do you think, to take that kind of angle? Because we love satire. Yeah? Yes. So it's a kind of satirical yeah. it's a jab. Satire is uh, very strong because uh, all those uh, actions which uh, politicians are usually doing, they are doing with uh, very serious faces and uh, with an uh, opinion that it's only them who are right. And when you suddenly make fun of them, you see the truth. It means a lot, even if it costs a lot. In this country, feminism is almost mainstream. It's perhaps not quite mainstream, but it's very, you know, it's very common to, to say that you're a feminist if you're a young person here. What would you say it's like being a young feminist in Russia? Is, is that difficult? I think it's different from here because we have different background. All this experience which West lived in 60s, for example, and 70s, did not exist in Russia. So stereotypes which which can sound funny at one point and tragic and in another are still alive in Russia. It's very obvious, uh, for example, if you're a girl and uh, if you're wearing, for example, uh, short skirts uh, to hear about the, from like older people that uh, you're a whore and so on. So it's like an very obvious things which uh, which is possible to describe, but they are very inside uh, society. We do not have, for example, gender studies at all in our universities. If we'll talk about, for example, LGBT topic, is it's a big tragedy because you can be killed for that. It's not a question of gay rights or open monologues and articles. It's a question of life. This is uh, a difference. What do you think that the impact of Pussy Riot's actions and existence has been in Russia? For, for a younger generation particularly, do you think that there's a generation that looks up to, to Pussy Riot and sees what you did? This year I met uh, some girls who were like 17 and 18 years old. I just came there and they came to me and said that they grew up on our songs and uh, our texts. That's how feminism should exist in Russia. And when you when you hear these words, you feel yourself like, uh, I don't know, it's a strange feeling. <laughs> but do you, do you feel kind of proud? Do you feel happy? Of course, I, I feel myself happy, but it's again responsibility to continue what we are doing. And uh, at the same time, I think it's a very bright example of a thing that even in the situation when government own all channels, all media, they cannot cut the eyes of people and they will find. This is makes me happy. <laughs> Do you think that the comparisons that are sometimes made between Putin and Trump are overstated? The way that they project self-image or use propaganda, 
the way that Trump called the newspapers the enemy of the American people? Of course, it's uh, a lot of similarities, but there are a lot of parallels. But uh, we should remember that Putin is just a face of uh, FSB system controlling our country for almost a century. Trump was elected, and it's possible, and for my opinion, it's necessary to impeach him. A 50%, as I know, didn't vote on these elections. This is the main uh, thing with which we are fighting. It's an apathy. It's an um, opinion that your voice doesn't mean anything. It's only by your own decision to act it's possible to make a big change. Do you feel that democracy is under threat, for example, in Europe or, or in the States? I do not believe it's kind of a final crushing somebody. It's a kind of a wake-up call. It happened already. You should uh, understand why it happened and what you can do at this situation. Living in Russia and doing uh, things there, I see the changes. Some people say that it's uh, kind of a small changes, but for those people for whom we're doing, it's a whole life. The world will, will change. It's, it's no other way. That's it for this week. Masha Alakina's book, Riot Days, and Viv Groskop's book, The Anna Karenina Fix, are both out now. And Tate's exhibition, Red Star Over Russia, runs until the 18th of February, and it's highly recommended. Next week, it's our food special. We'll be chatting to the chef and TV star Ravinda Bogle and discussing service charge and the thorny issue of tipping with restaurant critic Tim Haywood. And looking ahead to the festive season, we're going to be heading out to our local borough market next week and asking the cheesemakers and butchers and other storeholders what makes Christmas Christmas for them. What would you like to hear us chat about on our foodie episode? Let us know at facebook.com slash everything else podcast or email us at everything else at ft.com you can subscribe to the podcast on any app and listen online at ft.com slash everything else please leave us a review or a rating on itunes this is not just to massage our ego but it does help other people find the podcast everything else is produced by chica airs we've been grizzanal dosvedania dosvedania